Thank you for having me back. Um, all right. Uh, today's sermon is not going to be a depressing one, I don't think, so it's a bit of a change. Um, and I'm going to do something different. I usually, I've read from the ESV translation my whole life as a Christian. Uh, I know that you guys use the NIV, is that right? I'm actually quite liking the NIV um, in my sermon prep. So I'm going to use my phone uh, for the first time in a long time and read from the NIV. Um, today's passage comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 1 to 5. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 to 5. This is the words of the Apostle Paul and this is the word of God. It reads, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and in particular, this passage uh, that was written by the Apostle Paul. We thank you that this passage was preserved in the Scriptures. Father, as we look at the topic of evangelism today, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, not just to understand what was written by Paul to Timothy, but to understand what you are saying to us today through your living word. I pray for unction as I preach so that the word of God might shape each and every one of us, not just to grow our knowledge, but to shape the way we do life. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is actually one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Uh, it was a passage written by the Apostle Paul, uh, and it was written to a young man by the name of Timothy, who was someone that was very special to Paul. Paul considered Timothy not just as like a protege or a disciple, but Timothy was almost like the son that Paul never had. And we know this because if you read the opening to 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul uses uh, a, like a specific language when referring to Timothy. He calls Timothy his beloved child, and he refers to Timothy as my true child in the faith. Timothy was someone that Paul held very near and dear to his heart. Now, for a bit of context, 2 Timothy was written while Paul was in prison, and it would be the last letter that the Apostle Paul would ever write. Uh, history has it that Paul would be executed shortly after uh, by beheading. He'd get his head cut off because he was a Roman citizen. Uh, so that was kind of the, the more lenient way of killing uh, people on death row. Uh, and this would happen not long after he'd finished this letter. And what's crazy is if you read through 2 Timothy, 
Uh, you'll notice words that Paul uses in you know, sentences that sort of imply that Paul knew uh, that his death was imminent. Uh, if you read in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul uses words like, he says, like, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. This sounds like the words of someone who doesn't expect to be around much longer. It sounds like someone that knows his time is almost up. And so I want us to bear this in mind as we unpackage today's passage, because having an awareness of the context will really shape how we read Paul's words today. Now, if you ever read through 1 and 2 Timothy, uh, you'll find that a lot of the content really sounds like a teacher passing on ministry experience and advice uh, onto a student or a protege. And a lot of it really sounds like encouragement and fatherly advice. Uh, for example, in 2 Timothy 1.8, uh, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't be ashamed uh, of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.8, he says, Timothy, remember Jesus. Remember him. Risen from the dead. And in chapter 2, verse 15, he says to Timothy, Do your best. Do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved. But by contrast, to all these fatherly, you know, encouraging pieces of advice, if you read the opening verse of today's passage in verse 1, the language that Paul uses as he opens chapter 4 is actually quite direct and very stern. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge or this command. There is a weightiness to the words that Paul uses as he nears the conclusion of his letter in chapter 4. And if you take into account the fact that Paul, that this is the last letter that Paul is ever going to write before he gets his head cut off, you can almost feel the desperation of his heart behind verse 1. Let me read it again. It says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. It's almost like as if he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to listen to me. I'm going to die soon. This is the last thing I'm ever going to write to you or anyone. So, Timothy, if you're going to remember anything out of everything I've ever taught you, if you're going to remember one piece of advice, one command out of everything, then remember this. What was the command? Well, verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. And Paul gives this as what we call an imperative command. And an imperative command means that this is not optional. He's not saying to Timothy, look, Timothy, it'll be good if you preach the word. He's not saying it'll be helpful for God's kingdom if you preached the word. But rather, he's saying to Timothy, this is an imperative command. I am not giving you a choice as your mentor and as your spiritual, uh, spiritual father. This is an imperative command. Preach the word. But Paul doesn't just throw out this commands to preach the word. It doesn't just blindly throw this command on its own, but he follows it up with two sets of descriptors or ideas that are to shape how he expects Timothy to preach the word. 
And this is where I say I kind of like the NIV translation. Uh, but if you look at your NIV translation, you'll see the two descriptors or ideas are neatly divided uh, by semicolons, if you know your English punctuation. It reads, preach the word, semicolon. Be prepared in season and out of season. What Paul is doing with this first descriptor to be prepared in season and out of season, is he setting an expectation to Timothy. He's saying to him to always be ready to proclaim the gospel no matter what. No excuses. Even if you're not in the mood, even if you're going through a difficult season in life, he's saying to Timothy, you always have to be prepared in season or out of season. To put it more bluntly, if I were to paraphrase it, He's saying, Timothy, I don't ever want you to be in a position where a gospel opportunity presents itself, an opportunity for you to share the gospel and you don't know what to say or how to say it. Be prepared in season and out of season. Now, I mentioned that there were two descriptors. And if you read verse 2, you'll find that there is a second semicolon. Preach the word, semicolon. Be prepared in season and out of season. Semicolon. And then he says, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction or teaching. These words, especially the second descriptor, it's pretty significant because this idea of correcting, rebuking, and encouraging with great patience and careful instruction, this, this second descriptor adds many facets and dimensions to what our evangelism is meant to look like. And what I mean by that is if Paul just used the words correct and rebuke and didn't add the rest of it in, then this command to preach the word would be nothing more than a license to go Bible bashing people to tell everyone that they're going to hell, to tell everyone that we're right and they're wrong. If that were the case, if Paul just used the words correct and rebuke, then our evangelism would be nothing more than a culture war. It would be evangelism where love is absent. But instead, when it comes to preaching the word, Paul says, don't just correct, don't just rebuke, but your preaching and your sharing, your witnessing of Christ should encourage them. It should be defined by great patience and careful instruction. He's saying to Timothy, we can't be in the business of just destroying people, destroying their worldview. We can't be in the business of just telling people that their worldview is completely wrong, but ours is right. But instead, our evangelism should be shaped where love drives us, where our hearts are urging people and pointing them to the one and only worldview that leads to eternal life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this means that our evangelism has to be more than just the impartation of a, a, a gospel message. We're not just called to throw like a gospel grenade and give a two-minute verbal presentation and walk away thinking we've done our thing for evangelism. But Paul's two descriptors that define how we are to preach the word, what it does is it tells Timothy 
And it tells us today that evangelism requires an investment of love from us. An investment of love for us into the lives of other people. Because if you think about it, encouraging another person, being patient with another person, implies that you have an ongoing presence in their life. Because what the world says, the world world lacks patience today. They say if someone rubs you the wrong way or if they frustrate you, you don't need to be patient with them. You don't need to put up with them. Just walk away from them and cut that person out of your life. That's what they say, isn't it? But an ongoing patience with someone implies that we are to have an ongoing presence in the lives of people in the world. And so Paul's imperative command to Timothy is to preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. This is the weighty command that the Apostle Paul gives to his spiritual son Timothy in his final letter. But why this command? You know, Paul could have written anything he wanted to Timothy. This is his last letter. This is the last thing that Timothy is ever going to read from the Apostle Paul. He could have given Timothy advice on how to do ministry better. He could have given advice on how to relate to people better, how to pastor people better. Why this command? Well, Paul gives us the reason in the very next two verses. Because he begins it with the conjunction for. I like referring to a lot of English punctuation and techniques in my sermons. But he uses uh, the next verse. He begins it with the conjunction for, implying that he's going to give the reason. He says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul is warning Timothy that a time is coming when people are not going to want to hear about Jesus. And he warns Timothy that these people are not just people outside the church, but also inside the church. People are going to start flocking. They're going to move away from solid preaching, solid biblical doctrine, and they're going to move away and find teachers, find people that are going to tell them things that their sinful hearts want to hear. They're going to want people that affirm sinful lifestyles so that they don't have to change. No matter how ridiculous it sounds, they're going to flock to these people. This was true in Paul's day, and it's becoming frighteningly true in our day. And when I read these words from Paul, it kind of reminds me of um, pop stars and rock stars. I've never been to a rock concert, but I've seen rock concerts on TV, so I'm assuming uh, they're all the same. Uh, But I've noticed that a lot of musicians, when they sing on stage and the crowd is cheering, uh, one of the things that musicians do or singers do to get the crowd even more riled up is they tell them how much they love their city. Don't they? 
They say, we love you, Sydney. And then everyone's, everyone from Sydney screams. And they say, this is the greatest city in the world. And then they scream again. The crowd cheers and goes crazy, don't they? But it's empty words, isn't it? Because these celebrities don't really think Sydney's the greatest place in the world. Like, I know about five places I'd rather be except Sydney. Like, I'm going to Korea tomorrow. I'm pretty excited. I always wanted to. If I had the money, I'd live in Korea. But the fans eat it up, don't they? They eat up. They love these empty words. And Paul warns Timothy that this kind of behavior is going to become the norm for people in the world, both outside but also inside the church. People are going to have their hearts hardened to the gospel. There's going to be people that are going to reject the gospel. And there's also going to be people that are apathetic and indifferent to the gospel. And for me, this idea of being indifferent and apathetic to the gospel is actually scarier than someone that just outright rejects Christ. Because for someone that's indifferent, or rather, for someone that rejects Christ, it means that they've at least taken the time to think about it. They've looked at what the gospel teaches, the truth of the gospel, and they've come to a conclusion after thinking about it that this isn't for them. But for someone that's indifferent and apathetic to the gospel, it means that they're not even willing to expend the intellectual capacity to consider or think about whether what's in this book is true. And it's very prominent in our generation and in among, amongst young people. It's almost like the non-thinking generation. And so if you're like Timothy, uh, you're kind of left wondering if that's the case. If this day is coming, and I think we're in it now, what are we meant to do? If they're indifferent and apathetic and not even willing to think about it, what are we meant to do about this situation? Well, Paul tells Timothy in verse 5, says, but you, Timothy, you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now, the best way to explain what this verse means is to explain what it doesn't mean. Uh, verse 5 doesn't mean to ignore people that are indifferent and apathetic to the gospel. Paul's not saying to Timothy, okay, in, verse, in the earlier verses, I, I spoke about people that are going to reject the gospel, that are going to flock to these false teachers, that are going to want people that affirm sinful lifestyles. Paul isn't saying, forget about these people, just live your life well. He's not saying, don't worry about everyone else, just focus on your own faith. Instead, Paul is telling Timothy to do the opposite. If anything, he's urging Timothy to invest his life into the non-thinking generation. This generation of people who are not just rejecting the gospel, but they're indifferent and apathetic to Christ. This is what he's telling Timothy to do. And we know this because Paul uses the word evangelist in verse 5. He says, do the work of an evangelist. What's the role of an evangelist? It's to take the gospel to a people that are not saved. 
It's to share Christ with people that don't know Christ. This is the job of an evangelist. If Paul used the word pastor instead of, instead of evangelist, verse 5 would have a very different meaning. However, by using the word evangelist, Paul is telling Timothy, you cannot neglect and ignore these people that reject the gospel. Instead, you need to invest in these people. Sacrifice for these people. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful teaching or instruction. And Paul doesn't sugarcoat what this process is going to look like. He knows this is hard. It's hard work. But instead he tells Timothy, but you, you Timothy, my spiritual son Timothy, you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Because it's not going to be easy. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. He's saying to Timothy, as an evangelist, when it comes to sharing the gospel, I want you to do everything within your, uh, within your power. With every fiber of your being, make sure, Timothy, that you don't leave any stones unturned. Do everything you can to fulfill this imperative command. Preach the word. Be prepared in season, out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Keep your head, Timothy, in all situations. Endure hardship, Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Do everything that you can, Timothy. And that's how today's passage ends. And like with every passage uh, that we study, uh, we should be asking that question, what can we take away from a passage like this? And I hope that you've already sort of taken away certain principles, uh, but I just want to share a few application points about evangelism. There might not necessarily be direct correlations to the text, uh, but I'm hoping that they'll be helpful in shaping the way evangelism could be done today. I was going to say should, but there's many ways to do it. Uh, the first is to pray. Because evangelism is scary work. Uh, this is more of a confession than an observation. But I think it's a confession that many Christians need to be open about and be willing to admit. Uh, and that is, evangelism is a daunting and a scary task, isn't it? I don't know about you, uh, but for many people that I know, including myself, uh, there is a part of me uh, that becomes hesitant and anxious about the notion of approaching someone to share the gospel. And this hesitance and this anxiety, it almost evokes a sense of guilt, doesn't it? Like, why am I not more bold? Why, why do I feel any anxiety in my heart? I'm sharing the gospel that Paul says in Romans 1.16 is the power of God for salvation. What do I have to feel anxious about? And we, we kind of beat ourselves up over it because we feel that anxiety and this hesitance stems from a lack of conviction and boldness on our part. 
But the fact of the matter is that the notion, the very idea of approaching an unbeliever to begin a dialogue about Jesus, it's normal to feel anxious. And right, you know, it's normal. We should be feeling anxious, and rightly so, because, you know, if you seize an opportunity to share the gospel, you're really putting yourself in a vulnerable position, aren't you? Because you don't know how this person's going to react. If you're friends with this person, you don't know how weird this relationship is going to become after you, sh- after you try to share the gospel. Uh, I've got a work colleague by the name of Poe. Um, I don't know if he's watching, but yeah, we, we, I love playing FIFA. Well, I haven't played it. My wife won't let, won't let me play anymore, but I used to love playing FIFA. And I used to go to Poe's house a lot and we'd play, uh, play FIFA together. And sometimes I'd like try to squeeze in an opportunity to share the gospel and we'd be playing FIFA and I'm like, hey, Poe, what do you think happens after we die? And I tried to open a dialogue and our relationships become very weird because now when I go to Poe's house, before I walk into his house, he says, Jay, stop, stop. This is a Jesus-free zone. When you come into my door, I don't want to hear anything about Jesus or this gospel. And our relationships become very weird. But I think we need to be willing to admit that evangelism is a daunting task. Normal people feel anxious when it comes to evangelism. But don't beat yourself up because you feel you're lacking in boldness. Um, boldness doesn't come naturally to most people. Even in the early church, uh, if you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that even they had to pray for boldness. Acts chapter 4, verse 21, the church lifts up a prayer and says, enable your servants to preach with what? With boldness. Why would you pray for boldness? Because you need it. Because you're lacking in it. And So that's my first point. Pray. Because evangelism is scary work. Point number two, uh, church should be a community of love-driven relationships. Um, There is a Christian author by the name of Tim Chester who wrote a fantastic book on evangelism. Um, The book is called Evangelism. Um, And uh, when writing about church community, uh, he writes this, I'll quote. um, He says, we need to be communities of love, and we need to be seen as communities of love. People need to encounter the church as a network of relationships rather than a meeting that you attend or a place that you enter. And I found this quite profound because it's kind of synonymous with what Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 35, where he says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, neither Tim nor Jesus are saying that church life needs to be perfect. We we obviously need to strive to do the best we can, uh, but church life many times, especially Korean churches, um, is very far from perfect. And given that we're all descendants of Adam, it's only normal that our relationships with each other are far from perfect. Because what is the church? It's a congregation of fallen sinners that need grace from God and have received grace from God. But this is where the church community has an opportunity to demonstrate to the world a different kind of love in action. Because the world's definition of love says that I am going to love this person because they meet all of my conditions 
my criteria. Even when we look for a husband or a wife, say, I want to, everyone's got a list or a criteria. Apparently, I don't meet any of the criteria uh, that my wife had. <laughs> Pretty encouraging. Um, but that's kind of how the world defines love, isn't it? If you meet all of my conditions, then you know, I'm, I'm going to love you. I'm going to invest my life into your life. But the problem is that this kind of love that's dictated by someone meeting all of your conditions doesn't allow anyone to encounter unconditional love, which is what the world desires, isn't it? Because if someone meets all your conditions, how are you going to love them unconditionally? But agape love teaches us that church relationships are to model unconditional love. Christian love is unconditional love. And so what the church needs to become is a community of love-driven relationships where the love is not modelled by the world's definition, but it's modelled by the cross. Because in the cross, Christ demonstrates ultimate unconditional love. Because we didn't meet God's conditions. Not one. And yet, he was willing to demonstrate love by laying his life down for us. And this is the kind of love that churches should seek to emulate and demonstrate to the world. It's not about showing the world what perfect looks like, uh, but rather what grace and love in action looks like. Churches need to be communities of love-driven relationships. Final point, uh, love-driven evangelism means making new friends. And this is terrible news if you're an introvert like me. Uh, Love-driven evangelism means that you have to make new friends. Uh, When Paul gives the command to Timothy to preach the word, he says in his second descriptor, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. This means that the purpose of our evangelism can't be to destroy a person, but it has to be to build up a person. It's not about proving that we're right and they're they're wrong and we're right. It's not a culture war, but rather evangelism has to be driven by love so that these people can see the same Jesus that we see. And this needs to be done with more than just a two-minute verbal presentation of the gospel. Instead, love-driven evangelism means that we need to be very intentional about going out and forging new friendships, meeting new people, forging new friendships so that we have opportunities to demonstrate God's love in action. Love-driven evangelism means showing through friendship that even in this new friend that I've made, even if they choose to reject Jesus as Lord and Saviour, even if they choose not to become a Christian, gives an opportunity for us to show them that we're still willing to be their friend, that we're still willing to love them and proactively show that we're willing to be there for them even when the going gets tough. It means showing this friend that even if they don't accept our worldview, we're willing to love them and sacrifice for them. And these types of friendships, in my opinion, are more powerful than any verbal gospel presentation. 
because the love that they experience through this kind of friendship is what makes the gospel tangible to them. More than just a religious concept, more than just a mantra of a Christian faith. So that even if they do continue to reject the gospel, they will be able to at least get a taste of what God's love is like through our friendship. So those are the three applications or observations that I want to leave you with today. Uh, Number one, pray, uh, because evangelism is scary work. And number two, the church should be driven by, or church should be a community, rather, of love-driven relationships. And point number three, uh, love-driven evangelism means making new friends. Uh, This has to be something that the church does, going out and being intentional in making new friends. Uh, And so in this moment, uh, as I close my sermon, I'd just like us to spend uh, just a few minutes in prayer uh, to pray about love. Um, Because love isn't something that comes naturally to sinful people, to fallen humanity. Uh, Love, agape love, only became possible because it reached down to us from heaven. And so in this moment, I'd like us to spend a bit of time in prayer for this agape love that was revealed by the grace of God to be able to shape not just the way we do church, but by the way we engage in our friendships. Because love is the lifeblood that empowers the gospel. It's what reveals Christ to the world. It's not religious doctrine that reveals Christ. It's the gospel put into action in our lives through the love that we have for the world. So let's spend a few minutes praying uh, that God would reveal more of his love for us and that this love would continually day by day transform the way we live our Christian lives, both in the church and in the world. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul to his son Timothy. Uh, We thank you that these words were preserved in the Scriptures. We thank you for the depth in which Paul gives the imperative command to preach the word so that our evangelism will not just be relegated to a verbal presentation. It will not be defined by Bible bashing, but it will be defined by your transforming love, demonstrated to us, shaping our lives so that we can give the world a taste of your goodness. Father, I pray that FLM would continue to grow and be a community of love-driven relationships and that this community would be intentional about forging new friendships, that through new friendships that are forged, that we would demonstrate love, sacrifice and grace so that the world would be able to taste of your goodness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.